the World Nomads podcast bonus episode. Hear amazing nomads sharing their knowledge, stories and experience of world travel. Thanks for tuning into this episode featuring an amazing nomad and this time it's an Australian filmmaker. His name is Miles Rowland and his passion for filmmaking and travel led him into the documentary space field where he says he found his true calling, telling stories, gathering images and seeing the world all at the same time. Yeah, look, and he's picked up a few awards for that, which is great because we're also thrilled that he captures some stories for world nomads. He was recently filming with environmentalist Tim Jarvis on the 25-0 project, which you'll hear about in this episode. So how then did he find himself in Tanzania in the middle of a Maasai circumcision ceremony? Well, we were doing a documentary and a project with a guy called Tim Jarvis, polar explorer, environmental scientist, bit of a legend. Um, and his latest project is looking at equatorial glaciers. And basically he's looked at the 25 mountains around the equator that have glaciers. And of course, due to climate change, they're vanishing fairly quickly. And it's a documentary that's going and looking at them you know, um, documenting, raising awareness and sort of putting it down, you know, showcasing these things that are literally drying out and about to die. They're sort of, we just got back from Mount Kenya uh, earlier in the year and that mountain, the glaciers on the mountain are just, um, there's only a few left and they're very sorry looking things. So we went to Uganda, um, the beautiful Ruanzori Mountains of Western Uganda on the Congo, Congo border. And then after that, we went to Kilimanjaro and climbed Kilimanjaro to look at the, the glaciers on Kilimanjaro. And that was the, so that's why we were there. But then just as much about the looking at the glaciers is looking at the, the surrounding region, some of the impacts, some of the things that have, uh, the, the people in the region are struggling with due to climate change, whether it's directly or indirectly from the lack of glaciers or the, the, the retreat um, and decline of the glaciers, but also looking at solutions and adaptation. And, um, and then we found ourselves with this Maasai group that have set up a, a stoves and solar project. And the, it's, the Maasai are very interesting because they've been a very old culture um, and been doing certain things in a certain way for a very, very long time. Fairly incredible that they've uh, avoided being too uh, swayed by, by t- technology and just where, where, how society has taken every other culture around the world. And they live very simply in a very uh, traditional way. And that means that they've been cooking and lighting their homes in the same way for a long time, which is to burn wood and on an open fire in their closed huts. And of course, that's like catastrophic for, for lung uh, health and for child mortality and, and adult, morta- adult mortality, especially amongst the women. And so this group looked at... Um, introducing better technology with stoves so that the smoke is taken out of the uh, huts and they feed the fire with uh, smaller pieces of wood and you need um, like you know a a tiny amount of wood to make these things burn and heat and um, and then they use solar for lighting the home so that they're um, they're getting the same out, same outcome. They're getting and they're needing less wood. And so, for you know, deforestation in Tanzania um, is pretty incredible, um, and the deforestation rates are very high. And so, projects like this that are uh, that are solving multiple outcomes are very interesting. And so, that's why we went into this village to go and look at that. Uh, look, you say they live simply, but you know, I I think we studied the Maasai in my anthropology one hundred and one classes all the way back. Um, yes. Uh, no technology, but it's a very complex society and very complex culture. 
Oh, absolutely. It's so complex. And yeah, when you, when you sort of um, parachute into that scenario, just after coming off mountain, the mountain, it is just staggering. Um, and you really just feel like um, you've got no idea how it all works and that it's, you know, our simple ways of, um, of, of our societal functions just don't really apply. And it was very, uh, I would have loved to spend more time there and, you know, attend it with a, attend, attend the ceremony with an anthropologist because it was so uh, intriguing and intricate. Um, I couldn't even begin to understand the complexities of, um, the, the structures in that culture. Now that ceremony you're talking about is was a circumcision ceremony, the marking, you know, the young guy's maturity into manhood. Yeah. So we, when we arrived at the, because we were there to film the stoves and um, have a tour of this village that had a lot of stoves operating in that place, and but then when we arrived, they were doing that very iconic Maasai dance as we were driving into the village, and um, you know, it was a bit cliche almost with thinking, oh gosh, you know, this is a fairly standard routine. Is it? And then I said, no, 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 there's a circumcision ceremony happening. And we're thinking, what? Like, he's like, yeah, your time is great. There's um, three boys who are getting circumcised tonight. And you think, oh my God, wow. Like what are the chances? Like how lucky are we? We get to be part of this, um, uh, this, this amazing tradition um, and ceremony. And so, uh, and we asked if we could start filming and, and document that as a side project. And they said, yeah, go for it. And so uh, we, you know, just just witnessed the step back and watched the whole thing um, play out. And so started with the, some of the sort of the older boys that in their 18, 19 year old um, guys were leading the, the ceremony um, at sunset, which is just a lot of dancing and chanting. And they're sort of in a way uh, riling the boys up, getting them, uh, a bit agitated. They were sort of like um, teasing him and, and slapping him in the face gently. And um, it's just sort of a, a bit of a pregame hustle, if you, uh, for lack of a better description. Uh, and the boys, you know, they are so young looking. They're, I mean, they're, they're sort of somewhere 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, and they were very nervous looking. But the older boys who have been through this, you know, take a lot of pride in, in leading this, uh, this chant and this celebration. That is a way of sort of you know, getting into a bit of a trance state for them. I think they're agitating them to sort of go, right, you know, um, to rile them up to get, to get sort of motivated. motivated, yeah, and get the blood flowing and get them sort of, yeah, like a pregame hustle so that you march out onto the field, um, you know, ready to, ready to go. Can I say we don't actually see anything um, too gruesome in the film, but it must have been, you know, from our standard, it must have been a pretty gruesome experience. You say. Yeah, it's um, for us insular um, Australians, it is pretty confronting because, you know, I mean, the whole way of life for a Maasai is just steps ahead of where we think, you know, of what hardship is um, in terms of day-to-day living. And, um, you know, they're living in really simple accommodation and in a very hot and dry um, and fairly in, in what we would call inhospitable part of the world. And they, uh, yeah, and that's, and then ceremonies like this where, you know, it's, you know, it's a, a rite of passage and it's, you know, pretty painful and intense and, um, but it's, you know, something that's sacred to, to that culture. Meanwhile, like the, during that dance, the older um, chaps were just having, um, some goats they cooked up a goat that evening for us and so we for, for, for all the the elder gentlemen and so there was um 
that's when we when we got there and just have to, at, at sunset there was this sort of goat leg being handed around and then sunset and then I think at about 1 a.m that's when they go down to the river um, and the circumcision is performed then in the river in the um, with the cold water um, I think is perhaps somewhat of an, an anesthetic and then the following the boys get a few days to recover um, in their huts well you say it's confronting then okay but did you get a different attitude about something? What did you take away from that? How did it, you know, like it must have had, had some sort of effect on you? As it, I suppose, you know, you come back from that and go, geez, that's, that's intense, you know, but you sort of, the, um, you have a respect for other people's way of living. I want to go in there and start saying, oh, geez, guys, you know, um, have you got any uh, local anaesthetic? Uh, is that knife sharp? Is it sterilised? You know, you just sort of go, you know what, you know, like, I'm not going to start calling shots on, uh, you know, how it should be done or how I would have it done if it were me. I just think it was one of these things that I just all I could do was witness and just sit back and watch it and be um, feel privileged that I could see something so incredible in a incredible part of the world with a unique um, group of people. And so it was, you know, I don't think I was applying too much to my own life because it was just, they just couldn't, the maths wouldn't work out as to how it would go for us. Cause we're just, um, you know, completely living in a different part of the world with different rules in our society and different, yeah, in a completely different culture. Now, Phil, I know you said that we don't get to see this circumcision ceremony in this film. Um, and earlier, Miles, you mentioned the word getting the blood running. There is yeah. though a scene that is quite confronting and that is, how to slaughter a cow. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was the following day. So we went back again the next day because they were, that's when the, um, the next ceremony happening was happening, which was the, uh, uh, a big feast, um, for the whole village. And, um, one of the gentlemen, uh, one of the fathers of the boys donated a cow to the, um, tribe. And, and so it's quite an exciting, uh, it was a real difference in pace of the day because, you know, it was after the event. And so, some, again, some of the same boys, that, um, sort of the older, the, the older teenagers and some of the younger adults um, were being shown by the elders on the process of, you know, sacrificing a cow and, um, and preparing it for, the, for a big dinner um, that, that afternoon. And so what was interesting about that is that it's, uh, again, Something that we're just so unfamiliar with that process of what it's like, you know, how you how you kill a cow physically, what you do, but then all the bits you do along the way to ensure the best delivery of that meat, and also capturing some of the the, the prizes along the way. And so the the key one, which was pretty confronting, was the uh, drinking of the blood. Um, and I don't think it's it's not necessarily part of the ceremony. It's just like if you're going to kill a cow you drink the blood because it's awesome. That's kind of what I took from it. It wasn't sort of like, you know, everyone come around and have a, have a sip of this. It's like, who's thirsty? Get on, get on, you know, jump on in. Um, and so the process was today, you know, we didn't really know what was going on, um, but you could see that they were taking huge care after they killed the cow to separate um, the hide from the neck. Um, and then they found this um, blood vessel that runs a big key artery that runs through across the neck. And then they sort of cut one, end and then tie that off and then the other end is then running into this um, loose bit of hide which for lack of better description again forms a bit of a drinking fountain and so the blood fills up the hide and then 
uh, everyone tucks in and they just drink it and it's warm and it's fresh and that's like, you know, in, it's, the, it's one of the best bits apparently. Uh, been a vegetarian, I didn't try it. Um, I thought about it, but um, it seems again something to witness and just be just be part of it, and just watch watch it all go down. But it was like you know, it was pretty pretty interesting. And then as they cut they cut the, um, the bits up and they sort of um, start cooking that on the on the fire. They start, um, but as they go, they take some of the bones off and then they take the marrow out. And then they get a little stick. I um, mean, you can see that in the film him sort of with a stick poking the marrow out through the middle of the bones and eating that. And apparently that's also quite a delicacy. Total so, nose-to-tail consumption of an animal. Yeah, and, you know, in, in terms of, um, you know, it always feels difficult when you're working in the climate change space to, you know, meat is obviously a, a, is, uh, a big one for the, for the you know, health of the planet because of methane and, and that sort of stuff. And, um, but, you know, you can't help but see when someone responsibly um, grows a cow uh, ethically um, and I would say that from what I saw there, it was a fairly um, ethical um, slaughtering as well. Uh, you know, it was like there wasn't much trauma and pain put through the, the towards the animal. And, and then when they, you know, know, everyone in the village knows how to do it. And I think, you know, that is a much more sustainable way of um, consuming meat and, you know, keeping it for um, special occasions. So That's you know, right, because meat's not part of their normal diet. I mean, there's no way that you can... Yeah, because they had sort of 15 cows in that village um, and, you know, they're worth, they're worth a lot to them. So, um, yeah, it's not like they're having it for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Um, can, I, so, can I just say this is why they eat guinea pig in um, South America, in Peru in particular, because it takes a lot of effort to grow a cow and they live in smaller family groups there. So when you um, slaughter a cow, there's a lot of meat that you need to, you know, dispose of to eat. And it's too much for them. Whereas, mm. you know, a guinea pig is kind of exactly the right. Well, the Catholic guinea pigs will feed a family. Um, and that's, you know, and next, next in line is insects, as we think that the yeah. future of, um, of uh, protein should be from insects. I've had yeah. ants before. You have to eat a lot of ants to get some. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good way to diet. Um, Miles, you are a fabulous storyteller and we'll share your personal site in show notes and some of the work that you've been doing. What have, what have you been capturing lately outside of uh, what you did for World Nomads? So we most recently um, did a story. Uh, we've, we've, been, we've been continuing the 25-0 journey. So we went to Mount Kenya in February this year and went up Mount Kenya, which was, which was an amazing trip um, and putting more um, effort into that storytelling for that film, but also coming up with lots of little um, tidbits on the side um, and learning a bit more about the impacts of uh, climate change in Mount Kenya in that region, which is unique to that area. Um, I'll be working, doing Discovery Channel series. I've got a Nat Geo series coming up um, called Extreme China 2, which will be um, just quite exciting. It's all about... Uh, following a photographer um, going into China and um, with the help of some locals doing some pretty cool challenges. Um, we went to, I did a very interesting project with um, NBC, which is a Saudi Arabian channel. And it was the, it's following three girls traveling around the world. And it's um, a, a one of its kind for um, certainly Saudi Arabia and the Middle East, but a female travel show, especially coming out of Saudi Arabia. And the final of the episode was, um, the finale of the episode, sorry, the finale of the season was going to Christchurch because um, the um, 
the mosque attacks happened just um, towards the end of the season and they wanted to um, there was quite a quite a lot of outrage and 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 sympathy and um, support coming from the Middle East and so they went to Mecca and brought some holy water uh, and some Qurans in the names of some of the victims and brought them out to give them to some of the families and so I was working on that final episode um, and we went to some of the mosques, um, yeah, a few sort of about a week after the attacks. It was pretty, uh, it was very, a heavy, heavy episode, um, but it was also at the same time, it was incredible, like the, uh, the level of defiance and sympathy and warmth that the, the community and that some of the victims were showing to, um, to, you know, to the attacker and to all those that have sort of vilified uh, Muslims in the past is the complete opposite of what you expect. And it was really incredible. It's been a, this year has been a, a pretty, pretty awesome one. And there's a few other cool um, series coming up. We'll keep us in the loop and enjoy your time resting there in Adelaide. <laughs> Thank you. You are more than welcome, Miles. Links in show notes. Plus, we'll share a podcast link to the episode in which we chatted to Tim Jarvis about 25-0. And we've got some pics too. Miles gave them to us. To get in touch with us, email podcast at World Nomads and listen to our episodes by grabbing them from wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Do subscribe so that way you don't miss an episode and then we encourage you to rate and share. So what's next, Phil? Uh, yes, it's another destination. We're off to Belize. We'll see you then. Belize Navidad. <laughs> Bye. Amazing nomads. Be inspired.